We have a very special episode for you this week. We have been honored to get time to chat with the most amazing woman, Tiffany Huff Struthers. In addition to being a survivor of domestic violence from one of the most terrifying stories I've heard, she's also a powerhouse of a woman on a mission in life to empower women. Tiffany lives at her calling as an evangelist, award-winning author, sought after speaker, coach, and domestic violence survivor and advocate. Welcome, Tiffany. I'm so excited to have you as a special guest on our new podcast. All right, ma'am. I'd love it for you to introduce yourself a little bit of who you are. I am Tiffany Huffstruthers. I am a mom to two very big men boys. I am a wife. I am a journal junkie, also now a glasses junkie, and I love uh, coffee mugs as well. I uh, like it myself as a storytelling coach, and also I believe that I have the gift to uplift, and it is my calling to do that, and so I'm always talking, and I ask a lot of questions because it's necessary for me to be able to serve better. I'm a servant leader and a passionate, multi-passionate serial entrepreneur. So that's kind of me. Oh, and of course I love books, reading them, writing them, giving them. Well, just your introduction that comes through on your website, your passion, your, um, just your energy whoever designed it, whether it was you or a website designer really captured you in an essence, because as you described yourself, I felt like I already knew you. So that was pretty cool. Yes. So I loved that. I I was reading through it and I was capturing it because I have to do my research, right? Absolutely. Um, As I was trying to do my research on your story, I couldn't find anything outright. Now, Hannah shared some of your story, which is the part that was, you know, um, really telling for me. Um, but I did learn that you published the book 30 day stay one woman's story of escaping death, healing from heartbreak and finding hope in homelessness. Now I know that tells your incredible story and we will provide a, a link to, um, your book on Amazon in our episode description. So our listeners and members can go ahead and access that. I did just order my copy. So it's not going to be here until after this interview. So I'm hoping we can kind of walk through the typical survivor story questions that we ask all of our survivors to um, tell us. And then I'd love to learn a little bit more about when she thrives. Is that all good with you? Sounds perfect to me. Okay. So how did you first meet your abusive ex-partner and what attracted you to that person in the beginning? So (laughs) this is a funny, um, a funny story because we grew up in the same neighborhood. Um, We didn't go to the same schools, excuse me, but we had some mutual friends. And in fact, my friends and I did not like him. (laughs) We did not like him. And um, we always you know, it was kind of like one of those, he picked with us and we picked with him kind of deals. We were in high school, but yeah, I met him, um, just, just in our neighborhood. And so once we got a little older and I got to know him, what I loved about him so much was my life was very serious. And by that, I mean, I was very folk. I had an addiction to achievement. I was very focused on 
my grades and getting to college and not doing anything wrong. And so he was like my space to have an outlet. And we just, nothing, there was no pressure at first. There was nothing too serious. It was just he and I having a good time. We both were going through like some struggles personally in our family. So we supported each other in that way. And I think we were a safe space for one another in that season. I love that. And that's what I think people um, who have not been through a situation don't realize that it wasn't always abusive. There was a time when you actually enjoyed being around that person for whatever reason, or you wouldn't have been around them. Right. Exactly. So you grew up in the same neighborhood. What was the neighborhood you grew up in? We grew up in the north side of Pittsburgh. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. So um, how long after you met, did you start to connect and have that safe space together? Um, well, I would say <clears throat> it, it was a few years. It was a few years. We actually started dating the summer before our senior year in high school. Okay. Yeah. Very young. Yes, we were very young. We, we grew up to, literally in the relationship together. Okay. And that sometimes is good. And oftentimes, as you can read through most of our survivor spotlights, it doesn't always turn out that well. So, um, right. Because we don't always grow and evolve at the same pace and we aren't always growing and evolving in the same direction. And forgive me if I'm getting ahead, but I, what I know to be true now more than ever is that, you know, people talk a lot of times about how you can't take everyone with you. I think what I know now that I did not know then is that everyone doesn't really want to go. That is true. And sometimes we're trying to like force it or convince. And then if we're not careful, we decide to settle because we want to appease the other person. So, yes. I'm, I'm speechless in this moment because I felt that. (laughs) And, And unfortunately I felt that with family, not necessarily with, Um, but that is a, just a powerful statement. And I kind of just had to mentally record it there. Um, okay. So when did the abuse begin and what kind of abuse did you experience? Did it develop over time or was it kind of just bang right out of the gate? (laughs) So I, I will definitely say that it developed over time. And I always share when I'm, you know, talking about this journey that, all those years of watching those Lifetime movies, they did me no good, literally. The the flags were bright red and they were huge. And I think when you're young and you're just so happy in love, and I'm doing air quotes now, that you can just excuse things away. And so I think very very early on, it was the subtle possessiveness that was um, excused away or accepted as he's so in love, you know, he's just so crazy about you. He just can't get enough of me. You know, those little things that you interpret the way you want to interpret because it just feels good. It was very subtle over time. um, And then it progressed. So initially it was more emotional abuse. Um, and it progressed to emotional, mental, and physical over many years. 
when you say many years, can you give us an estimate about or exact? Yeah, we were all together off and on from the time that we were 17 to about 27, 28. Okay. Many years then. Yes. Okay. Um, do you want to describe some of the um, more mental abuse that you went through with him? Because what I find is a lot of people attribute abuse to the physical and some of us can relate a little to the, the emotional side of it. Um, I just, as a survivor, can you talk a little bit about the mental abuse piece of it? Just because I want our listeners to understand that aspect. So for me, the mental abuse was a lot of, of making me feel bad for who I was and who I was becoming. And it was largely based on his own insecurity about me not including him and in what he could foresee was to come. And I never had any, I never was planning to exclude him. I always envisioned us moving forward together. Yeah. Me. Um, very, <laughs> very silly me. But it was a lot of, um, it was a lot of, condescending talk, a lot of contradicting my beliefs or downplaying my accomplishments or um, only being willing to celebrate my accomplishments after he downplayed them to the extent that I was trying to convince him how much I loved him and how much I needed him and how much I cared. And always it was very ego-based. Um, and again, I do recognize his insecurities and his traumas played into it. But it was a whole lot of trying to break down my confidence, my belief in myself. And for as much as I think he liked to be able to boast about who I was and the great things that I was doing, he also hated them. Yes. It was the mental anguish of, of that. And there was also the mental challenge of having this facade and going into places and spaces where people thought I was great and doing amazing and not knowing how horribly I was suffer suffering internally and behind closed doors. Yeah. So it, it's kind of a common thread that I noticed through some abusive situations that at first were almost excited that they're possessive and then they want to be around us, but they don't want um, us to succeed without them, right? They don't want us yes. to keep going places. They want us to stay put and only need them. Um, yes. And I kind of hear that in your story. Now, externally, he's got to be proud because he'd look stupid to not be proud of all that you've done, but internally, he just wants you to only need him. Yes. And, and that was another way that, that he attempted to control he would immediately withhold financial support in any way, uh, shape, or form. And it only infuriated him more that I wanted him but did not necessarily need him. Yes. So that withholding was his way to control, but it didn't work. Not at least not all of the time, because I was always like, well, I'll figure it out a way. Yeah. Your drive will get you there. So. That had to drive him crazy. Yes. Oh, 
Okay, well, we typically ask what the tipping point for a survivor was, what made them decide they needed to end the relationship. While I know you were, and I'm using air quotes now, freed from your abuser based on what Hannah told me, was there any point before that fateful day that you know you needed to leave? So out of the extensive amount of time that we were together, we had two children. And I, like I said, I have two sons and I just was unwilling to raise them in an environment where they felt that it was normal for a woman to be treated the way that I was being treated. And I also wasn't able to be the best mom for them under the circumstances. And it was very, very challenging because I don't know a woman who does not want their family unit to be together. Right. I don't know a woman yeah. who doesn't want their children to have both parents and all of the things. Um, and so I, I, I believe I overstayed because I did want that for my babies, but I got to a point where I had to choose my heart. Either it'll be hard to stay or it'll be hard to move yes. forward and, um, and go and be better for myself. Tiffany, can you tell us about the last day? That's all I want to describe it as. If you go ahead and walk us through that um, for listeners to hear. So um, one very hot day in August 2006, I had um, a little sleepover. (laughs) And every time I tell this story, I'm always baffled about why it was my sister's birthday weekend and I had both our children and I was not out celebrating with her. But I'm going to call her after this interview and get the answer to that. However, I had my two boys and I had my niece and my nephew. We were having a little sleepover. It was my sister's birthday weekend. They were out celebrating and we were just hanging out. And then, you know, I put the the kids down and we were all asleep. And I heard a noise. And initially, because I had the window air conditioning units, it was kind of a muffled noise, but I heard it. I thought that one of the kids had fallen out of the bed. So I opened the door to my bedroom. And when I did, I could see directly into my boy's bedroom and everything was still intact. So I knew it wasn't the kids. And then I heard footsteps. And as soon as I heard the footsteps, I knew it was him. Like this was like maybe a fifth, probably not even 15 seconds that this happened. Me looking in the room, hearing the footsteps. And before I could like, gather myself he was running up the steps toward me with a gun in his head oh and he just like shoved me back into my bedroom and through this whole ordeal which I don't think lasted very long but of course when you're in it it feels like it's going on forever um the entire time though he had the the barrel of the gun pointed on the like ridge of my nose right between my eyebrows And so he like shoves me back into the bedroom and like around to where I could like be seated on the bed. And he just has this gun there and he's yelling and he's screaming and he's smacking and he's pulling my hair. And, you know, when people say in the movies that their life flashes before their eyes, that's not like I saw so many images from my life. Like I saw this image of me and my mom at my high school graduation. 
I saw this image of me breastfeeding my son in the hospital, like all of these things. And all I could do was pray like, God, please don't take me away from my babies. And so he's screaming and yelling and all of this is going on. And I just got really nervous, like really, really nervous. In hindsight, that was probably the first panic attack I ever had. But I felt like I was going to go to the bathroom on myself and not just like, you know, the liquid. Like I thought I was going to go. And so I was like, I really need to go to the bathroom. He let me get up and he's like following me to the bathroom. And at one point, just before we went out the door to my bedroom, he like pushed me up against the wall and he's hollering and screaming again. That gun is still in my face. And I looked into his eyes and I realized that he was drunk or very high. Like he was beside himself. Yeah. And when I saw his eyes, I was like, if I don't do something, he's going to kill me. And so very much like a woman on a Lifetime movie would do, I grabbed the barrel of the gun and we got into a tug of war. And I was able somehow to get the gun off him. And I stood there looking stupid the way a woman on Lifetime would do. And in the three to five seconds that I was trying to consider, should I turn this gun around and shoot him in his chest? Because he's a little taller than me. He realized that I had the gun and he pulled it back from me. Apparently there was no safety on the gun because he pulled it back from the trigger and it went off. And so like, I don't know for how long, but it felt like a long time, but time stood still probably for a second. It was this really big spark. And the next thing I knew I was on the floor and my leg was just flopping uncontrollably like a fish does when it comes out of water. And so I started screaming. I was like, oh my gosh, they're going to cut my leg off. And he's screaming like, look what you made me do. I might as well kill you and kill myself. Like, I'm never going to get out of jail for this. Like, however drunk or high he was, after that gun went off, he was sober. Like, he came back to reality and was like, part in the language, holy shit. Yeah. And all this while your boys are in the other room. Yes, all this. Oh, wow. So I'm like screaming, like, Give me the phone. Like, let me call 911. Just leave. I'll tell them someone broke in. Like, they won't know it was you. And he did break in. Like, he, he, what that sound that I heard whenever I first got out of bed, it was him shooting a hole through my back door so that he could put his hand in and unlock the door and come in. Oh, my goodness. So finally, he, because what? Well, I was asking for his help because my leg, swelled up really big like I had elephantitis so it got so heavy that I couldn't like drag myself with my leg to get to anything um and so finally he was like okay he gave me the phone and he left <laughs> and believe it or not by the time I gathered myself to be able to dial 911 he when I pitched the this is landline people when I pushed the number the talk button on my wire a cordless phone he was on there i'm like please get off the phone let me call 911 i can't talk to you right now so i finally called 911 and i called my sister um 
you know, I call family to come and like get the kids because I got to go to the hospital and I ended up on the 11 o'clock news. It was a whole thing. Wow. So, well, like when yes. I talk about this now, it's mm -hmm. literally like I've lived another life. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it just, ha it happened to you now. I, right. I mean, you're talking about it so calmly and I'm over here with goosebumps and yet it seems like you've evolved beyond it. Um, and I'm living it for you right now. So I, I like that you're healed, but I can see that it's clearly like another life you live, not even your current one. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it definitely takes practice for me to not break down okay. um, while I'm telling it because it's just so unbelievable. Yeah. Um, you almost but, have to disassociate in order to do it. Yes. Yes. So you call 911, then what happens? So I call 911 um, and the police come in and they're like, I'm like, someone broke in. They're like, no, nothing's missing. It doesn't look like anybody was looking for anything. Like, you know who did this to you. And um, my, my older son, who at the time was two years old, had woken up and I did not know it and he just didn't get out of his bed. And, um, so there, I had pictures in my boy's room of us, like family portraits. And uh -huh. they were like, who is that? And I think, um, you know, one of the kids said like, it's their dad or it's my dad. Um, and so they knew, right. So they put like an APB out and a bolo and I went to the hospital um, and I had to have surgery immediately when I got there, the bullet shattered my femur. And so I have a metal rod in my leg. So they had to put, they had to do a surgery where they put this thing like pins in my leg to stretch it mm -hmm. until I could get the other surgery for the rod to go in. Oh, so it was wow. a very, very traumatic time. I had to be in the hospital under an alias because he was not apprehended yet. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was just crazy. How long did it take them to get him? If you remember. Almost a month. Oh, wow. That's a month of terror. Um, and yeah, initially it was because, you know, we were together forever. There was nowhere, there was no friend or family member that of mine that he did not know. And yeah. so I didn't feel safe anywhere. And that's how um, my boys and I ended up in that emergency shelter because I just, the, 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 um, the fear was so great. Like I couldn't be comfortable anywhere. I was very anxious. Yeah. I was struggling a lot with PTSD. I didn't like going outside. I felt like everybody saw me on the news and everybody knew what happened to me and everybody was staring at me. It was a very challenging time. So I went from a walker, a walker and a wheelchair to crutches. Um, and mind you, my younger son at this time, this was, this happened in August, his birthday's in September. So literally he and I learned to walk together. Oh, wow. Yes. It was, it was tough. And was tough. how old are they now? 18 and 17. Okay. Yep. 
one is a freshman in college and one is a um, senior in high school. I'm, I'm grateful and blessed that they had you as a mother, just as a side note to our interview here. Um, I just, I'm so happy that they had you and that they're thriving now, um, as older teenagers. So, um, you say that you were in an emergency shelter, you know, did you go straight from the hospital to there? Where were your boys when you were in the hospital? Kind of explain a little about the process of you having to now leave safely. My boys were with my sister who was a godsend. She had my boys while I was in the hospital. And then I temporarily went to my sister's after I was in the hospital, but I just, I just couldn't be there. I didn't feel safe. My sister had to work. So like when she went to work, she would take the boys to daycare. She would pick them up, but I, I did not feel safe at her house alone. Yeah. Off the couch. And um, yeah, so that's how we all ended up going to um, the, the shelter mostly for dare I say like my sanity yeah um, I, I mean it was imagine but it didn't really help my sanity under the circumstances you know when you go through something like that and you ultimately lose everything like number one my independence because I couldn't walk man I couldn't do a whole lot of things my landlord didn't say like I was evicted but he was like you probably don't want to live here anymore type of deal, you know? So my sister and my nieces went and moved everything out of our house. And so it was just one of those things where like literally overnight, I, I had nothing. I was just starting again. And so when you're in one of those spaces, on top of the fact that you're in a temporary housing place where they're constantly telling you that you only have 30 days and you feel like your life has just completely fallen apart, you can't fix that in 30 days. No, and you're still healing mentally from the PTSD and the shock of yes. what happened. And, and physically. Physical, yes. And so you, you're very, still going through surgeries. That's, that's got to be a better place. Time. Yeah, I was in physical therapy and yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. Wow. I'm angry at the system in this moment because I feel like there should have been a, you know, a rehabilitation center where you could have gone and you know, because it was also physically medical Um, with your children safer so that you didn't have all that pressure on top of you to rebuild an entire life, get better and take care of your young boys who overheard this traumatic incident with their father and mom. I just, Mm -hmm. I want to shake people. It's just, they have to think beyond that. Yeah. 30 days, 30 days. It's not, that's not okay. It's not Um, And I do understand that I'm sure there are some people who come into these spaces who may not necessarily be there for the right reasons. And they want to make sure that people understand the urgency because there are other people who are in need. I get that. But at the same time, you have to be able to empathize with people in situations like that. And the approach to, you know, enforcing said circumstances really needs to be um, trauma informed, if you will. Yes, that is a great point. You know, they need to evaluate it on a case by case basis. And 
there needs to be more compassion behind the way they communicate that. Um, and I'm hoping since this was a while ago that that emergency shelter has grown and gotten better at trauma-informed care. Um, and if not, maybe one day they'll listen to this episode and learn. That's right. That's right. That would be great. So you said in the beginning that it was kind of funny because you and your friends didn't really like him, you know, even before um, you were dating. At this point now, obviously, you've been shot. You're, you're in terror. Your children, you know, were a part of this. How did your friends and family react to what happened to you? Everybody, nobody could believe it. Everybody was just like in shock. Um, yeah, I just, everybody was just in shock and just concerned, you know, for my well-being and the boys' well-being. But I would say the primary, the primary um, sentiments would, would be shock and anger, obviously. Yeah. Um, okay. So how long did it take you to rebuild, to get into another place with your boys? And, um, second question, how long did it take for your leg to finally heal? So you kind of got a two-parter there. Okay. So, um, this happened in August and I can tell you that in December, I still had crutches. Oh, wow. But, But I live in Pittsburgh and it snows in December and it gets icy in December. And I refused to have those crutches in December because I was so afraid that I would fall if the crutch slid or anything. I kind of um, (laughs) hijacked the healing process and kind of took it into my own hands. So by, you know, December, early January, I was making it work. Um, and also at that point, you know, when you're a single mom and you have two young children, I needed my hands for my babies. I couldn't be on crutches. And my younger son was walking at that point, but he was new to walking, you know, and still need a hand. What little boy doesn't want to try and go into the street or chase whatever. So I just, I couldn't do the crutches. So yeah. So what I don't need, that wasn't even six months of healing time. Wow. Um, and then I left the shelter with it prior to my 30 days, I think like day 27 or something. And I stayed with my dad for a little while. And then in April of the following year, I packed up my minivan and my boys and I moved to North Carolina. Okay. Um, I have a people who lives there. And I did that because while I was trying to rebuild I would get interviews and I would go through all of the mental and emotional preparation necessary to go into these spaces where I felt like people had seen me on the news and were just like, wanted me to come so they could see me. And the interviews would go well, but I was not getting any jobs. I wasn't getting any offers. Yeah, I just felt, and I could have just been making this up in my head, but I felt like it was because of what happened. I feel like they wanted a chance to meet you. And they just, you're right, but they didn't want the, you know, the challenge of potentially having me as a staff. Yeah. So I decided that I would go and make a fresh start and also just have some time to heal away from Yeah. everything. So while I was in North Carolina, I was there for two years. 
And it was a really great place for me to just reconnect with myself, reconnect with my babies, rebuild um, my credit and things that were damaged through through the process. Um, mm -hmm. And it was great. I lived there. I lost some weight. I got in shape and all of those things. And then I came back to Pittsburgh in 2009. So I would say it took those two years. Okay. Minimally. And probably it took... It took two years for me to look good off the outside. It probably took another two or three years for me to be well. I get that. Really be well. Yes. So that kind of goes right into our next question. How has your journey towards healing developed over the years? So I think the hardest part of the journey outside of the physical healing was forgiving myself. Uh, I tried really hard while I was in the hospital and even thereafter to hate him. Yeah. And that's just not who I am. Um, like I literally put in effort, hear me. I tried very hard to be hateful. Um, I definitely hated what he did. But, you know, just like my decision to eat the whole bag of Oreos does not define me, his decision to do what he did did not define him. And yeah. they're two completely different things. But my point is, our decisions do not define us. Um, but I was very hard on myself. I spent a lot of time in the space of shoulda, coulda, woulda and rethinking decisions that I made and choices to stay and you know, all of those things. So I really had to for spend some time forgiving myself and accepting that this detour was not, you know, a, def um, a moment of defeat that would change the possibilities of greatness for me as a yeah. woman and for me as a mom. Um, so that took a good while. And that also was the impetus for me finding my voice and understanding the power that I had to be able to create change and support others and, you know, become part of who I am today, I guess. I know that sounds cliche, but that's the honest truth. No, that's wonderful. And when you say come into who you are today um, and the calling that you have to help others. Are we talking when she thrives, this organization that you've created or just beyond that? So definitely when she thrives um, was born out of this experience because one of the things that I learned while I was in that shelter and in need of help and support was that a lot of the organizations and programs that are purpose to help um, anybody in a, in a, season of desperation or need were very harmful. And so at the time there was really nothing I could do about it. I mean, I could barely walk. I had nowhere to live, yeah. but it lit a fire in me and I knew that I needed to do something about it. Um, so it's definitely the emphasis for when she thrives, but also, you know, just understanding the power of story and how sharing our stories really does 
create impact and transformation. And it's something that I'm very passionate about within When She Thrives, but also outside of When She Thrives. I am a life and storytelling coach, and it is my calling, I believe, to really help people understand the power of anything you grow through to not only change your life, but also the lives of others. I love that. I, I'm taking notes because I want to go look up your coach, um, your lifestyle coach um, information. Now, I assume that's all in your website. Well, I assume because I've actually looked at it, but I would <laughs> love for you to talk about, I think there are three major sections to your website. Um, I'd love for you to kind of talk about what you do now for the public and for women. And um, when she thrives is a part of that, your, your coaching, your one-on-one, I noticed, um, mm-hmm. and just really share with others because we're going to provide a link to your website. So if anyone wants to reach out to you and connect, they're able to do that, but kind of tell us about what that experience would be the Tiffany Huffstruthers experience. So, <laughs> So, okay, so these are two separate entities. Um, when She Thrives is an organization, it's a nonprofit organization that is purposed to empower single mothers to move their families from poverty to prosperity. And we do that through education, advocacy, personal and professional development. Okay. We have five very robust programs that um, run the gamut of um rapid response crisis prevention grants to prevent hunger, homelessness, and unemployment, all the way through programming that supports single moms to become authors and entrepreneurs. So we have a multitude of programs. We serve in excess of 500 people annually, and um, we just celebrated our sixth official year. And on October 12th, we got a proclamation from the mayor of the city of Pittsburgh that October 12th is officially when she thrives stay in the city now. That is so amazing. Now, do you only serve the Pittsburgh area or is when she thrives something that's nationwide? So we serve moms wherever they are. Primarily we do our work in Pittsburgh. However, we've served moms in Chicago, Indiana, North Carolina, Ohio, um, yeah, so we okay. we don't discriminate. See, and that then, I love because I'd want the listeners to know that we do have a lot of, based on our stories, a lot of single moms looking for that guidance and maybe they can start with you. Absolutely, we would love that. Um, and just for our definition, a single mom is an unmarried mom with children in her care under the age of 24. So if your kids are in college, <laughs> We still support you. If you have a significant other, a partner, we don't count. We don't hold that against you. I recognize that in a lot of cases, when a mom is in need of support, she isn't able to get it because she has a boyfriend or a partner. Yes. And it's just counterproductive. Um, we are much more concerned about you being able to thrive than whether we should allow you to thrive, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. So that's the one piece of it. And then there's, you said you got a second one, which is the Tiffany Huffstruthers experience, correct? Yes. So the Tiffany Huff experience is my, um, my uh, for-profit entity. And ultimately through the Tiffany Huff experience, I do, like I said, coaching, both life and storytelling. And I do a lot of 
public speaking. Um, I work with women who are um, overcoming challenges or setbacks to help them to rebuild and or women who want to share their stories either in book form from the stage or to create something the way that I have, like with When She Thrives through my story. Okay. Um, so I do that through um, a multitude of ways. Like you, like you mentioned, I do one-on-one coaching. I also do bi-monthly in-person coaching sessions for groups called Coffee and Clarity, hence why I am in love with those coffee mugs. And it is this, um, a safe space for women to come together. It's topic-based. It's very intimate and it's a, a space for you to come in and get naked, to be both challenged and encouraged to grow through whatever challenge you're facing or to get out of your own way. I love that. I don't drink coffee, but I kind of want to now just to be a part of that. Well, we have tea and oh, water as well. Well, that would work. As long as I still get the cute coffee mug, I can put water in it. Then Absolutely. I'll feel because I love coffee mugs too, even though I don't drink coffee. Well, you can put water in there or yeah. you could put wine in there. We don't provide the wine. <laughs> but Some people may want that. I love that. Um, that's, right. that's great. So I kind of want to go back a little bit and ask you if there's anything that you would like to tell advocates about helping victims of domestic violence, what would some advice from you be? My number one piece of advice is don't assume you know what he or she needs. I think in order to be a, an advocate, you have to be um, an active listener. You have to be invested in observing and listening and learning from each individual um, person, right? Like all victims are not the same. All experiences are not the same. And what I need is not going to look the same as what someone else needs, but you won't know that unless you're willing to listen. And it doesn't always mean, I mean, in some cases it could very well be you asking Tiffany, what do you need? But understand that like in some moments, I don't even know. So sometimes the best way to advocate for me, to support me is to be there. And from being there, I think you'll have that opportunity to get that insight that you need to be the best advocate you can be. I love that advice because I have noticed in a lot of our survivor stories, when they're first coming out, they hear a lot of, we want to help. What can we do? And the survivors are saying, I don't know. I don't know what I need. I don't know what you can do. I'm just trying to survive today. And yeah. they've learned that just having someone there and ready to listen or ask for help is mm -hmm. more powerful than the action of somebody trying to do something. So I love that that was what your message was because I see that a lot and I like that it's coming from, from you. Um, okay. You know, Tiffany, I have had goosebumps through most of our conversation because your story is, is um, a really traumatic one, but to see how you have thrived and you've turned your life into this beacon of light for others, because, you know, you're not going to allow others to suffer in the way that you do did speaks to me. And I just, I'm so grateful that you took time out of your busy schedule to join us. 
Um, oh, I'm so grateful. I can't for believe the you did. <laughs> so, I'm so grateful for the opportunity. This is this is what I'm called to do. You know, I struggled a whole lot, Cara, and I didn't share this with you, but when I was in that shelter, I told the women who were there with me, I was like, this is so like crazy that this is my life. This is our life. And that this is the way something like this is run. Like I'm going to write a book about this. And I had a legal pad that they gave me in there. And I would like ask people like, what do you want your alias name to be? And like, there'll be certain things going on. And someone say, Tiffany, did you write that down? It has to be in the book. It was the thing that we all like clung to, to keep us going. Wow. Um, so even though I was doing all of that, I did not want to be the poster girl for domestic violence. I knew very early on that I was going to be an author, but I did not want this to be the story that I had to tell, especially not the first story that I was going to tell. But one day in my prayers, God made it expressly clear to me that if I did not tell this story, I would not tell any other story. And so that's what I meant when I was saying, like, I had to come into myself. I had to forgive myself and be accepting of myself and have confidence in the power that this pain and trauma, you know, and, and what yeah. I felt at the time was extremely embarrassing. You know, I had to come to terms with the gift that it could be. Yes. Um, and so I say all that to say that this, is an opportunity for me to do what I feel that I'm called to do. And my, my prayer is that someone is listening and feels like they can leave, or if they've already left, feels like they can rebuild. It won't be easy, but it is possible. And, you know, once you are confident in yourself and, you know, the possibilities for you and your life, you become unstoppable. Once again, I have goosebumps and I'm sitting here, vote for Tiffany. I'm just, <laughs> you are empowering. And I don't, I just, I wish I could put you just as a speaker. You had your own talk show because I feel as though people need to hear you, what you have to say. I, I don't know. You're, you're very empowering. So I'm just excited. Thank you, Cara. Uh, one day, I think one day I'll have a talk show called Coffee and Clarity. We'll see. You know, and one day I'm going to be, I remember she was on our podcast and I'm looking, I know somebody famous. Although when I was looking you up, you seemed pretty famous, which is why I was very nervous about today. Um, just because you're this powerful woman who coaches and speaks and we're a very fledgling podcast. So the fact that you came on, it just made me thrilled. And now to hear that this is your calling and you don't consider it fledgling, you're just doing your mission makes me feel even better. So Absolutely. I'm, I'm definitely appreciative. Um, so kind of as a closing thought is what is the most important thing for a survivor to hear in your perspective? I think it is two things. I'm cheating. That's okay. So one, <laughs> This is for the, the survivors that are listening, but also for you to what you just said. Do not despise small beginnings. Everything has to start somewhere. 
And I can tell you when I left um, Pittsburgh for North Carolina, I was staying with an uncle who was open, kind enough to open his heart to me. But I literally left with two babies and a minivan. So there was only so much that I could take. I literally had nothing, but I had so much peace of mind and feeling safe when you've grown through something like this is priceless. So I want everyone to know, like, don't despise small beginnings. Don't beat yourself up if you leave and you feel like the place that you have is a shoebox. Or you got that one nice black blazer that you got to wear every time you go to, like, don't even let that stop you. Because it only takes one seed for an apple tree to feed people for generations. The second thing that I want to say is something that I said earlier already, and that is choose your heart. I know it's hard to leave, especially if financially you're tied to said abuser, but choose your heart. Do you want to stay in something that's going to be hard, uh, uh, easy, what seems easier because you're in it now, but in the long run, it's going to be a life of hard, or do you want to choose the hard now so that you can have the life that you aspire to have? Choose your heart. Don't let anybody choose it for you and don't let the threat or the possibility of what's unknown be what stops you. I think those are the perfect closing thoughts to this episode. I don't know if there's anything else I can add to it. It's perfect. So listeners, the bottom line is choose your heart. Thank you, Tiffany, so much for joining us on episode three of Share Your Truth Live. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure to share I am excited for what is to come for this podcast and the lives that will be impacted, not from this episode, but from all of the work that you all are doing. So keep going. Do not despise small beginnings. And, you know, if I could be of support or help to anyone who's listening, please reach out to me.